you made it to level two, deeper questions leading to deeper answers. I'm Tomas Garza, and I'm here to help you decide to transform. I'll be setting the pace for the process to support your unfolding. Learn and commit to a practice that brings simplicity and an awareness of what is ready to be released. Join me now and allow the experience of a deeper sense of love. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Decide to Transform. I'm your host, Tomas Garza, and I'm so excited for today's show because I have, for the very first time in the history of the show, a high school classmate of mine right here as my guest. Now, this is Amy Halloran Steiner, and I've been excited to have this conversation for some time because, as you'll learn, Amy and I have been neighbors, having lived in the same area of Western Oregon for a number of years. Now, Amy is a licensed clinical social worker who teaches mindfulness and works with clients on her farm in Western Oregon, which we'll talk about here. She tends the earth by gardening, raising animals, planting trees, and immersing herself in nature. She believes strongly that we humans thrive through connection and care of one another and the earth, and when we're attuned also to the present moment. One of Amy's latest endeavors is the publishing of her very first book, The Mindfulness Sidekick, Mental Wellness to Maximize Transcranial Magnetic Stimulation. And Amy embraces her role in helping others transform into their best being so that they might be able to give back to the world that is so in need of all of our energy. We've got a lot of fun things to talk about, plus high school too. Amy, welcome. Thank you so much, Tomas. I'm happy to be here. This is so much fun, and I think that I really want to just launch right into the work that you're doing out in Western Oregon in beautiful countryside and wine country, by the way, outside of McMinnville, Oregon. You're doing a lot of work on your farm itself, so would you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. So I'm a licensed clinical social worker, which means I'm a counselor, and in the last 10 years, I've gotten passionate about teaching mindfulness. So I see clients out at my little office in the middle of a cow pasture on our farm. And I've been doing that for about seven years, I suppose. I used to work in downtown McMinnville, but realized uh, shortly into being on a second floor in an office that I really wanted my clients to touch the ground and to have contact with nature. So I've been inviting them out to my office and uh, pre-pandemic, we would be in my little office with big windows looking out into a cow pasture. Um, but lately, we've mostly been walking, spending some time that hour walking and talking and exploring people's inner lives as they're surrounded by trees and the sky and sunshine or rain. So that's, uh, that's pretty much what I've been doing in order to give these clients an experience of the peacefulness that comes from contact with nature. Okay. So then do they just, do they drive out and you have sessions out there at the farm then? Yep. The drive is about 15 minutes. And so clients have reported, which I didn't necessarily anticipate. They've reported that they like the experience of the drive out, having the time to 
decompress from their everyday life and to begin to think about what they're going to talk about in therapy. That's always a little bit nervous making for clients, I think. And when they arrive and we take a walk, then they have that chance to, like I said, to explore what's going on inside of themselves and the ways that they want to change. And then the drive home, they report, is often a chance for them to think a little bit about what, the, what we've talked about and also just to notice the countryside going by as they re-enter their, you know, busy and sometimes really painful lives. Okay. Well, I would think that that's a really interesting and valuable interrupt of, of routine and pattern. Now, have you discovered that people have commented that they really love that approach? Yeah, the majority of the people, you know, at this point, I do therapy on an online platform as well. So people can decide. And the people that end up choosing to come out do it because they're getting some value from the being together and the being in nature, for sure. And the majority of clients, when they can, choose to come out. Okay. Well, and uh, th this is really interesting because it's not something that you hear a lot about is people driving out to the country, one often thinks of a downtown office with neutral walls and, and, <laughs> and all of that. And I love that that's not the way you roll. I yeah, it's not, <laughs> it's not the way I roll. I encourage people to wear hiking boots or, you know, in the winter, they've got to wear rain boots and bring their rain gear. And uh, at this time of year, it's a bit of a transition because it's so lovely in the late spring and the summer and they don't really have to think about what they're wearing and we just wander up the road. But it takes people some motivation to come out in the rain or in the cold. And that's a, a great metaphor for the, the work they're doing in their lives. How motivated are they and how can they improve their motivation in, in order to make change? So everything that we do can be worked into their therapy session. I love that. Okay. Yeah. And the motivation piece is really interesting because you've been involved, haven't you, in all kinds of, of wilderness therapy and wilderness education programs throughout your career. Yeah, that's true. Actually, when I was, um, let's see, in college, I used to work in an environmental education center outside of New York City for kids from New York City. It was in Western Massachusetts. And that was my first experience of seeing the way it blew kids' minds to be out in nature. You know, they'd talk about turn off, turn on the fire and they'd sleep on the floor, you know? And what I saw, the kids would come in the summer in the, they would come for two and a half days in the spring and the fall with their science classes. And then in the summer, they'd come for five to seven days and they, they just opened up so much. And so what I thought then, I was not so much a science so interested in science, actually, as I am now, I'm much more interested now. But I really thought, man, if you could do counseling, if you could get kids to talk about the stuff that's going on in their lives out here in nature, that's what I want to do. And that's actually when I moved to Oregon, I explained that that was what I was interested in. And it turns out that there was a wilderness therapy program in Albany that I ended up working for after I got my master's in social work. Okay. So at that point, um, that was, you know, a really powerful experience to be leading these three week long trips for uh, adolescents that were really in some trouble. They were addicted to drugs or alcohol. They were depressed and anxious. They'd experienced some really tough stuff in their lives. And so they spent three weeks with a group of six to eight other adolescents and two, three, four adults 
And uh, we went on an expedition and the expedition was physical and difficult backpacking. We were in the snow and in Waldo Lake, which you'd probably know that area, Tomas. Yes, yes. Sometimes we get six feet of snow overnight and we'd be snowshoeing through it. Um, and so the expedition was very physical, but it was also very internal, very emotional. And these kids, what I saw them do over those three weeks was incredible. So I was sold on the, the work that the nature was doing, you know, we were, we were helping, but it was really nature doing that work for the kids, the therapeutic nut that was being cracked. Okay. Well, that's very interesting that nature does a lot of the work. Mm -hmm. Makes sense. It makes sense. No, yes, it does. And when did you get uh, really, really into nature and the wilderness? Was, I don't recall that from high school. Actually, I don't <laughs> recall that much. So I actually, um, some dear friends of mine, the Hudson's used to take me camping with them. As a kid, my parents were not at all into camping or anything really out of doors too much, except no. sitting at, at my softball games. <laughs> and so um, I just loved it. I didn't, I didn't have opportunities to do that much, but we had a, that outdoor ed program and I loved those. We used to go into Bear Canyon and Albuquerque in the, in the Sandias. And those were high points of my school year, but I really didn't have much of an opportunity. And it wasn't until college when I did some wilderness exploration that I could do with a club. And then I worked at that environmental education center and learned a lot of my skills. And I really didn't have, I wouldn't say I had wilderness leadership skills. When I started doing wilderness therapy, I was the trip therapist and there was a wilderness guide who, you know, was the, the lead wilderness guide. And actually my husband Silas was that lead wilderness guide on a couple of trips. And that's how we met and got to know each other. So there were, um, you know, people who had really good hard skills and they were keeping the kids physically safe. And our role was to keep them emotionally safe. So ever since then, you know, that's why we live on a farm now so that we could raise our kids out here in the middle of a natural environment, really getting in touch with the rhythms of nature and the seasons and the growing of things. Love so that. I'm sold. And I, of course, then want to share that with my clients. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, you're the first person that I've interviewed that had clients drive out to her farm for, <laughs> for therapy sessions. So that is unique. I'm sure it may exist elsewhere. It does. World, it does. And actually walking therapy is getting a little more uh, acceptable. I wouldn't say it's mainstream yet. There's actually research about how walking opens up the mind and allows people to be more creative. So creativity is an important role. There's an important role for creativity, I would say, in therapy, because if you can't really imagine your life in a different way, then it's difficult to move in the direction of changing your life in a way that you think you want it to be. Mm -hmm. So I, I assume that that contributes to people's, you know, energy towards change. Yes, I, I would think so. Now, question for you about nature. What is the most beautiful place that most really stands out to you that you've been, that you wish you were back in right Ooh. now? I have two immediate answers. One is last weekend, we hiked, um, we were in Joseph, in Wallowa County, which is beautiful Eastern Oregon. And we hiked, um, it's actually the longest hike I've ever done. We hiked 24 miles, 12 miles up to the Lakes Basin of the Eagle Cap Wilderness. And that, um, I don't know that it's ultimately my very favorite place, but in this last week, 
since we've come back. It has been in my soul. The I don't even know, I can't remember the numbers of how high it is, but we probably gained 3,500 feet. And it's just this beautiful granite, these beautiful granite mountains with a lake, with these lakes underneath. And the lakes were sparkling and the wind was moving. There's something about that combination of water and stone that is fantastic. The other place actually where I did really interact with nature is I spent my junior year in Nepal. And again, high altitude, beautiful mountains. So that's a place I would definitely like to go back to. And it just highlights how little time we in America spend in nature. You know, usually as people move up socioeconomically, they spend less and less time in nature um, until people are buying Patagonia jackets and are completely um, isolated from nature and then they go out in it, you know. So that experience in Nepal with staying with a host family and really being whipped around by the wind at high altitudes and hiking long distances just to do essential tasks was a powerful experience too. I can imagine. And, and approximately at what elevation were you living in Nepal? That's a really good question. I was in a little town called Simigao that actually mm -hmm. was devastated by an earthquake hmm, seven or eight years ago. Okay. Um, but it was on the way to Mount Everest. Mm. Uh, I don't know. I wish I could tell you those kinds of things. Mm. 12,000 feet or sure. higher. Well, exactly. Yeah. We can make it up. Isn't, yeah. that, isn't that wonderful? <laughs> we can just make it up. I think it was 14,650. <laughs> That's a lot. <laughs> Yeah, that, that, that's pretty high up. And, and what an opportunity that, that so many people don't get. And you're absolutely correct. And here in the United States, as people move up socioeconomically, then they tend to watch more nature on television. Right. The, the, <laughs> right. Then, then to get out that's in it. True. Now, when you were in Nepal, take us back there, because part of the work that you do has to do with mindfulness. Now, did mm -hmm. the fact that you were in Nepal contribute substantially to that? Tomas, you have a really good capacity to bring it full circle. I hadn't even really thought about that. But yeah, actually, the first time I was really introduced to the concepts of Buddhism was in the schooling that I got in Nepal. Yeah. And I learned a bit about the history and we had some and a bit about the um, iconography and the sort of traditional things that a person would learn in a classroom about Buddhism, as well as Hinduism. Um, but it was really being with Buddhist people and seeing the monks and the nuns that I got to interact with at a couple of points that really sort of opened my eyes to something so different. I was raised Catholic in Albuquerque, so I had one kind of experience, and that was really eye-opening for me. I ended up doing my independent project. Um, I I wrote poetry and spent a couple of weeks with some nuns way high up in the mountains and just um, doing the prayers that I didn't understand the words. I didn't understand a lot of what they were saying. I spoke some Nepali by that point, but they were speaking a couple of other languages as well. So it was mostly just really experiential in my body. And again, being in nature and I was, I was cracked wide open during that time. So I think a lot of my learning came from that. And um, 
yeah, I've learned a lot about Buddhism and obviously there's a large intersection between mindfulness and Buddhism. A lot yeah. of the great contributors to mindfulness in this country went to India and, and um, learned about Buddhism and learned about um, the teachings, you know, and, and ways to be mindful and ways to be mindful and spiritual. Mm -hmm. And then a lot of them came back and kind of secularized that, but there's, you know, a thriving culture of Buddhism here. Mm -hmm. in the united states yeah yeah so that's yeah. been impactful for me is, is that, that i can imagine that that was very impactful now what is it about buddhism what is it about the buddha dharma that really just grabbed you uh i think i have a very striving mind i think i think it was my striving mind that led me right into this dharma that says it is possible to do something different. And this, this attitude of non-striving, I think in my body, you know, when we talk about the mind, the body is a big part of that. And that's a lot of the work that I do with my clients, getting them to turn to their body. And I think I must have, though I didn't realize it at the time, I think I must have felt a real calming with that concept of non-striving, that really just being present, paying attention on purpose, letting go of judgment is, a breath. It's just a breath of fresh air. And I think I could feel that in my body in a very different way than I was sort of primed from my, you know, culture at home and my, my school and my, you know, you know how it was. Oh yeah. Yes. So <laughs> we were go-getters. We, we were, were strivers. Yes, we were go-getters. So listeners, Amy and I graduated in 1990 from Albuquerque Academy, which is a private college preparatory school where the academics were intense. And to say we're a bunch of go-getters, well, that's that's quite an understatement. It's go so chargers. True. Yeah, right? Yes. Yes. And it's, it's quite a different environment. And it just underscores the difference between the West and, and Eastern cultures and philosophy. So I can imagine that this, this calmed you greatly. Now, have you been back to Nepal? I haven't been back. I swore that I would be back within two years. And life is interesting what it does for us, isn't it? <laughs> it's a yes. winding path. And I don't, I don't regret anything I've done in my life, but the path did not, has not yet taken me back to Nepal. I have a plan in my mind for someday, places I want to see and things I want to learn. So I hope to get back there, but I haven't been back. Okay. Yeah. Well, just what a formative formative experience and then you you've returned then to the united states and as mindfulness is a, a huge component to your work so let's define mindfulness the way the way you see and experience it in case there are people listening that are, are confused by the many different definitions out there. Yes. Yeah. So um, I mentioned it a minute ago, but the components of mindfulness are really just paying attention on purpose to the present moment without grasping on judgment in a, in a non-judgmental way. There are a couple of things that in my teaching, I've seen that it's important to, to add to that. One of them is in a kind way, paying attention, not only judge non-judgmentally, but also being kind in particular to ourselves. Because I think our um, white American culture uh, 
really, we are learning how to be really hard on ourselves from an early age. And so that mm-hmm. kindness is an, an important piece. And, it, you know, I'm, I'm sure your listeners have heard this before. It really starts with kindness to ourselves before we can spread that kindness on out. So that's an important component. The other piece that I have found to be really important in my own teaching is the difference between this sort of, I call it um, the myth of the blank mind in Mm. mindfulness, that people come wanting to learn meditation or wanting to learn mindfulness, and they imagine that what they're going to get is this peaceful, completely blank mind that's very zen, you know, sort of the the caricature of a monk in the the mountains, you know, with sort of flatline, no thoughts, complete peace. And I like to dispel that myth as often as I can, because what people experience in their first five minutes of sitting down with mindfulness is their thoughts are coming at a rapid pace. They're having so many different experiences in their body. They don't really know what's happening and they can't get to that blank mind. And I encourage them to really pay attention, again, paying attention on purpose to what actually is happening and allowing that and acknowledging that is really meditation. So it feels chaotic. It sometimes feels uncomfortable. Uh, Often it can feel a little bit scary, but that's really what we're entering into this contract of I'm going to sit or I'm going to stand or I'm going to do whatever I'm doing and notice what's happening. And as best I can, I'm going to do the exercise of letting go of judgment about that, letting go of the shoulds, you know, and I'm going to see what happens. So the other piece for me is really helping people to understand that mindfulness can be applied anywhere. You know, if I had one, probably my main goal is in, in teaching mindfulness is to help it be really applicable. So I talk a lot about, you don't need to sit and meditate. If that's hard for you, then pay attention. Even if it's hard to do anything for a long period of time, then paying attention in the moment for a couple of minutes at a time. You know, I encourage people to, I do something where I get in the car and before I start the car often, I put my hands on the steering wheel and feel the steering wheel in my hands and feel my feet against the floor of the car and feel my body in the chair. And just in that process, I'm practicing mindfulness. I'm letting go of any judgment. I'm not planning where I'm going yet, you know, and I'm just there. So there are a million different things that we can do being mindful as we do them. Okay. Well, and I love that you're emphasizing the, I mean, there literally are millions of things. I love that you're emphasizing mm-hmm. that people don't have to pay attention because it's it's a common cultural stereotype that in order to meditate, you have to completely shave your head, take up monastic robes and go <laughs> off to Nepal. Right, right. Yeah. I mean, there is so much benefit in just being present in this moment. You know, if I slow down right, right now, for example, and really experience being with you in this interview, then I can really start to notice things. You know, for me, my one of my practices is go back to the body and I can feel in my chest the connection between me and you, Tomas, right mm-hmm. now, that um, is sort of um, a little bit vibrating and a little bit expansive. So I encourage people in the work that they do to turn to the body and use some adjectives just to describe what they're experiencing so that they can begin to explore that whole aspect of being present and being mindful, you know, tuning into what's actually happening in the sensations in your body. 
Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it's a, it's the place really to begin, and so many yeah. uh, so many therapies, so many modalities and practices just start with paying attention to what you're observing, what's going on in yeah. in the physical body. So, yeah. Amy, question for you: What is your mindfulness or meditation practice look like i know people are curious ah well so it depends that's that's my honest in terms of adaptation to life my mindfulness practice changes uh day to day week to week mm -hmm. it's important to me to to have some kind of meditation practice for at least 15 or 20 minutes every day as a slowing down and being present. So whether that's, um, you know, it's gone through phases, I wake up and I don't even move and I lie there and meditate for 20 minutes or so. That's pretty common because, you know, I'm going to wake people up if I get up out of bed. And so it's just the easiest if it's cold in the house, you know, I'm, I go for what's the easiest because my life is very busy and I want to make sure that I get it. What's happening right now actually is something really powerful. I have a friend who um, lives in Portland and she's working really hard to recover from cancer. And it is a deeply involved process. And so one of the things that her community, we as her community um, is doing is um, I have a Zoom every morning at 6.15 and whoever wants to hop on there um, gets on and, and meditates for this friend. And um, that lately has been my morning practice. You know, I do a little bit before I get on, but then that's been the, the main part of my morning practice. And it's, I'm sending energy to her and her family. And it's been interesting to see what that's given me in my life. It's not the, the going for the blank mind. It's not even paying attention to my own breath, which is often, you know, the anchor for attention can often right. be our breaths which can be helpful. It's um, manifesting, you know, intending to connect with this friend and her healing process. And so that's been interesting to see how applicable mindfulness can be. And it's a very restful process for me as well. I think it depends what we want to get out of um, a mindful practice. So then the other piece for me is really intending to pay attention whenever I can, wherever I can. So I have a, a practice of when I'm cooking in the kitchen, a listening practice. So really just tuning into the sounds that I'm making as I'm cooking and really focusing on that. There are a lot of aspects to mindfulness, a mindfulness practice. One of them is focus, really exercising your focus. So that's a big piece, right? Our minds are tasked with and naturally have evolved to uh, flit around in a hundred different directions in a minute, right? And so that focus of as I stop listening to notice that I'm no longer listening to the noises I'm making in the kitchen and then just gently to invite my attention to come on back. And that's with any mindfulness practice. When we have stopped paying attention, at some point we'll notice that we're no longer paying attention and boom, that's a beautiful opportunity for awakening, right? So mindfulness becomes not so much how long did you pay attention, but more what happened when you woke up and how did you come on back to, to the object of your attention? So I do a lot of those hands on the steering wheel, you know, feet on the ground as I'm walking to my office, noises in the kitchen, stepping outside. The first time I step outside, I really intend to feel the temperature of the air on my face and on my skin. There are so many different ways we can be mindful. 
There are, there are. And I think that this is great that you're talking about it because this is another one of the Western cultural myths. This is only one way and that's mm -hmm. seated meditation mm -hmm. in a monastery in yes. Nepal. Yeah, yes, or, or right. Tibet or, or something. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the Himalayas. Uh, yeah, uh, and people pay a lot for retreats, right? But yeah. I'm not going to talk that down because I've had some incredible experiences retreating and, um, you know, with teachers. Um, I am not a long time, you know, I'm not a Buddhist teacher. I am, I see myself as a very practical, I'm a clinical social worker and I want people to feel better. I want them to have a technology that is easy for them, simple, I, I shouldn't say easy, simple for them to learn and that they can keep practicing. And honestly, the clients that I've worked with that have kept practicing have really embraced a practice and have changed because of it. It's, it's hard work, you know, it's unseen kind of work. But the more you do, the more it changes the brain, right? The more it creates neuropathways that really transform a brain. Most definitely. And well, it is hard work. Well, and a process. Yeah. Now, who have been your greatest teachers? Uh, so Tara Brock is the one who comes to mind first. Okay. Your listeners may know her. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and um, for those that don't, can we say a couple words? Sure. You want to say them or you want me to say them? <laughs> Go ahead. Uh, Tara Brock is, um, she is a really beautiful, gifted teacher who is also a psychotherapist. Mm -hmm. She's in the Maryland, Washington, D.C. area. And um, so much of the work that she does now is around self-compassion and um really that kindness, but I've grown so much with her teachings. So she, I would say she is <clears throat> my primary long-term teacher that I've really loved. Um, but there are so many others, um, Jack Cornfield, Sharon Salzberg, a lot of the folks, John Kabat-Zinn is, you know, the, the father of mindfulness-based stress reduction, which is an eight-week program, which I got trained in, and it's been a phenomenal experience to get to know that program. It's not something that I teach in the eight-week module because I've, I've found that it's difficult for my clients to make that time. Um, so I've adapted it and use it in different parts. But anyway, John Kabat-Zinn is another of those teachers that went east Jack Cornfield and Sharon Salzberg did as well and came back with some amazing teachings. Yeah. 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 yeah there really are a couple did. of other teachers that have that are, are newer to me in the last couple of years. Um, Lama Rod Owens is fantastic. He's a, a Zen um, teacher and you know loves hip hop and is young and really a very lovable guy. Um, so she, he's one and Reverend Angel Kyoto Williams is another who I'm inspired by. So those are people that are um, becoming well-known for good reason, good teachers. Oh, beautiful. But this is really, really helpful, I think, because there are some people that listeners may not have heard of. There are a lot of teachers out there. Yes, yes, there are a lot of teachers. Mm -hmm. And as with therapy, you, you've got to find one that speaks your language and that you feel connected with, right? Mm -hmm. You can't, in this case, I don't think it's a good idea to fit a round peg in a square hole or whatever that saying is. <laughs> right. 
Yeah, yeah, I always get that saying wrong. So, yeah, everybody <laughs> knows what you mean. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, we, we we all know what you mean on that. No, no, Amy, I'd be remiss if we didn't talk about your book, The Mindfulness ah, Sidekick, yes. which has just come out. So, congratulations on being a first-time published author. First of Thank all, you. Thank you. It was an amazing process. I really, I did it entirely on my own because it grew from a booklet mm-hmm. into an actual book. So it was a really cool experience. All right. Yeah. Well, I, I love that um, as, as a, an author myself who did it all on my own. That's a whole process unto yeah. itself. Right. Right. Yes. The editing and the the whole production of it. Yeah, it, it was a wonderful experience. So do you want me to tell you about it? Let's do, let's, let's hear about it. All right. Well, uh, there is a practitioner in our town who's a psychiatric mental health practitioner, uh, psychiatric nurse practitioner, um, who is a friend and a colleague. And she started talking about this process that she does called transcranial magnetic stimulation. And um, I couldn't believe what I was hearing. It's a chair that she purchased. And this chair has an arm that goes over people's heads. And from the arm, a little coil comes out. And from this coil, there is um, this magnetic stimulation that happens for people's brains. So they, um, the technician will place the coil into the left dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, right about the hairline on the left side of the brain. And um, this treatment is for people who have long-term depression, two or three medications have not worked for them. It's just enduring. And there've been some really good outcomes with TMS. So that's for depression. There are also protocols now for anxiety, for PTSD they're working on, I believe they're working on um, a protocol for obsessive compulsive disorder and um, good things are happening for people. So I got really curious about, as is one of the mindful attitudes, right? Curiosity is a really good, open way to engage with the world. I got really curious about this intervention. And the more she talked about it, the more I thought, well, I should say the treatment is that you sit in this chair for about 20 to 40 minutes, five times a week. So you go in every weekday and you have this treatment in the chair. Um, for six weeks. And then the next three weeks, there are some taper down treatments. And um, I got real curious about, it seemed like that's a great place for people to learn mindfulness because they're trapped, you know, because they have this regular routine anyway. And um, wouldn't it be cool to write them a little booklet about mindfulness so Mm -hmm. that they could learn a little bit. So that's how this started. Okay. And, And what ended up was an actual book, which is a bit of a workbook, a bit of a um, sort of normalizing what's happening for the people who are doing TMS. You know, it goes week by week. And so they learn what they, what others have experienced during, you know, the beginnings of TMS and week by week we go with some instruction in mindfulness and um, in the beginning, some instruction in mindfulness and then some exercises and some journaling. And there's an activity for contacting nature. And, uh, and in that way, these, these clients who are engaging in or undertaking this big adventure can have this companion to walk alongside them as they do something that's fairly scary. You know, they're asked to hope again. Maybe this is an intervention that will work. And then what happens as the, as the treatment continues is that for some of them who are getting a good response from the treatment, 
they're changing, they're waking up, they're recognizing that their relationships are going to need to change if they're going to live inside of that relationship happily. And so the book sort of helps them understand some of those things. It talks about um, ways that, you know, we are part of systems and how systems can change. It talks about compassionate communication, which is also known as nonviolent communication and teaches a little bit about how to, how to talk about our needs and our values in order to impact that change so people can keep on growing because the worst part would be if someone got stuck in the relationships and in their lives that they were in and couldn't get better because their lives didn't, you know, move for them, allow them to adapt. So um, it, it was really fun to write the book and, uh, and I'm now working with some of those TMS clients in, I teach a mindfulness group, um, an online group where they are using the book and then we're practicing mindfulness together. Um, so I'm getting some good feedback about, about the book itself and that it's nice for them to have something. I love that. It's a really interesting tool. And I think a therapy that a lot of people have not heard about yet. Now, yeah. Amy, where can people purchase your book here? Uh, you can get it from Barnes and Noble. You can okay. get it from Amazon. Um, yeah, if people want to get in touch with me, I can direct them in other ways. I have a website, which is my name, A-M-Y-H-A-L-L-O-R-A-N. S-T-E-I-N-E-R.com. It's just my whole name smushed together, no hyphen. And uh, so there's a little bit more information about the book there as well. Um, what, you know, the people in my community who are not doing TMS, but are part of my Monday mindfulness community, I have a Monday at noon Zoom um, meditation that I've done for now. We're coming on four, four and a half years. It started at the library and now is on Zoom. Um, but those folks bought the book just because they wanted, I think, to support the effort. And what they have come back telling me is that it's just nice to have, even though they're not doing TMS, it's just a mindfulness primer, but also how to live well. Towards the end of the book, there's a piece on self-compassion and then on scheduling your time well. Again, Dan Siegel, one of my, um, someone who's taught me so much just from his writings and his teachings, he has a concept called the healthy mind platter with David Rock, who's a mindful leader. And, um, and it's about scheduling up our lives so that we have that balance. And so we have all the components for a healthy mind. So there's a, a, little, a chapter in there about making sure that your schedule is matching the life you wanna live and supporting your health. Okay, and so many resources out there. And again, for the listeners, Amy's website is Amy Haller and Steiner, all mashed together, as you say, all one word, dot com. And this is a place where you can find more information about what Amy is up to, including her book, The Mindfulness Sidekick, Mental Wellness to Maximize Transcranial Magnetic Stimulation, TMS, for That's short. Right. I love yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, Amy, I've learned a great deal that I didn't know. And well, uh, Good. You know, when, when, um, when you go to high school with somebody and, and uh, a couple <laughs> years of middle school too, actually. That's right. That's right. Was, seventh and eighth grade. Yeah. It was seventh <laughs> and eighth grade as well. Uh, you do learn a lot about people, but so much changes and in, in life and with life experience. And you've done things that a number of people will never do, such as spend a, a year in Nepal. And you, you've, 
you've done so many things related to mindfulness and spirituality and the connection between the two and nature. I've learned a great deal from having you here on the show. And before we wrap up here, what, what would you like to say to the listeners by way of closing here? I think I would encourage people to get out in nature, actually, to begin or continue getting to know their natural environment so closely that you can notice the changes over time, that you can notice the difference in, um, in your area during the change of seasons, and to really develop that relationship in order to receive. Really what you're gonna be doing is receiving and opening. So I would say if you can do one thing with your free time, it would be getting really mindful in a natural setting and allowing your body to relax and to soften and to tune in to what's happening around you. It's not just using your visual sense, but also using your listening, using your, you know, your skin and your sense of touch to explore the environment, your sense of smell, your sense of taste, even mm -hmm. with caution, of course. But that I think that would be my my invitation. That um, it's something that can cut across any religion, any socioeconomic status, you know, any cultural barriers that we are surrounded by this beautiful natural resource. And it's something that it's so important for us to protect and we won't really protect it until we know it and love it. So that would be my advice. Yeah, I love that. I love the way you wrap that up. You, we won't protect it until we know it and love it. So everyone off the couch and yeah. out into nature. Outside, get yes. outside. <laughs> All right. Well, Amy, this has been really wonderful. It's wonderful to catch up with you. Thank you so much for joining me today. Tomas, thank you. You do wonderful work. I really enjoyed it. Oh, thank you so much. And this has been Amy Haller and Steiner here, guys, on Decide to Transform. Reminder, look up Amy and find out what she's up to. It's quite a lot. AmyHallerandSteiner.com is her website. And thank you all for tuning in here today.